Dotnet Rocks episode 820 with guest Udi Dahan. Recorded live Saturday, November 3rd, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Hey, Tallahassee! Welcome to .NET Rocks! Woo! Yes, sir. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> hey, oh, yeah. it's Saturday. It's an all-day code camp. We just got keynoted by Udi Dahan, so we're a little brain fried. Yeah, we are a little brain fried. And uh, this is a great town, though. I've been here far too long. Oh, yes, you have. Yeah. The, the one week break we had on the road trip, you spent here, basically. Well, this is what I feel about it. I was listening to an NPR and Ed Asner. You remember Ed Asner, who was Lou Grant? Yeah. And he was supposed to be on a uh, radio show doing an interview live in New York, but they had to call him. He says, so why are we calling you? He says, because of that goddamn bitch of a hurricane, Sandy. <laughs> That's why I've been here all week, because of that bitch. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. So I could not go home. I went home. I come back. Yeah. Now we're back at it again. It's going to be another uh, three weeks of uh, one show after the next. But we're having a good time. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about the humanitarian toolbox.net, the website Hmm. that we uh, sort of launched in Chicago. And we, right before we came, right before the hurricane hit, we were in Washington, D.C. Yes. And (laughs) we're giving the talk and everybody knew Sandy was coming. At that point, it was coming for D.C. Yes, it was. Yeah. And it pretty much much got there. I think that's the way we were describing it. So suppose there was a gigantic hurricane heading right for your town. town. And everybody goes, yeah, I don't have to imagine Yeah, not a lot of imagining there. But it really brought that to life. Well, anyway, let's, uh, let's get into Better Know Framework here and get the show started. Everybody, what do you got? Well, I found a gem. Did you? I found a gem that I did not know existed, and it's in the system namespace. Huh. System.decimal. Do you know about system.decimal? Anybody, raise your hand here. Decimal? Raise your hand. four people, but I did call it out. Four people. System.decimal is not a class. It's a structure. Okay. And it represents decimal numbers ranging from positive, and then there's like 37 digits to <laughs> negative 37 digits. Okay. And here's what it says. A decimal number is a floating point value that consists of a sign, of a, a, sign a numeric value where each digit in the value ranges from zero to nine, and a scaling factor that indicates the position of floating decimal point. That separates the integral and fractional parts of the numeric value. The binary representation of decimal consists of a one-bit sign, a 96-bit integer number. Big number. Big frickin' number there. Big number. And a scaling factor used to divide the 96-bit integer and specify what portion of it is a decimal yeah, fraction. where the decimal should fall in that number. So okay. that's a whole lot of decimal places. Well, it's but it's also precise because an awful it's not floating point. That's right. right. And if you need to round it, you can use math.round to round yeah. it. So 
for very precise uh, things. And, you know, yeah, when as you actually want as, the numbers to add up. Yeah. As far as uh, when you're going to use this, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you how performant it is, like yeah. doing math with it, because what's happening in the background, I but, haven't. But if you need accuracy, why would you care? You, why would like, you care? Performance doesn't matter. You know, this is really fast, but it's wrong, but, but it's, it's fast. Really, <laughs> I think you mentioned something about that, Udi, in your talk. We'll get to that. Uh, but I, I can't imagine, you know, maybe. F sharp might have a field day with with, with this system dot decimal. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, that that might be interesting. All right. So system dot decimal. It's a structure. Know it, learn it, love it. Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of Udi's last show, which was, if you can believe it, six thirty nine. Unbelievable. Where we talked about CQRS, and this comment is from someone whose name is Cod Pewter. Really? Well, probably not his real... I don't think his parents gave him that name. Um, I think he called himself that. I'm a bit of a long comment, but stage worth the read. And this is from a while back. Uh, I think the most important message that Udi states somewhere in the 40 to 45 minute mark is that CQRS raises questions from the business perspective, more so than from the technical perspective. And I'm paraphrasing here. This is a short and very understated section of the whole interview, not to mention how late it was discussed in the interview. All users want the data to be correct, but what is timely to a geek is very much different from what is timely to a business user. And drilling down into that, quote, freshness really brings the business domain into the forefront. Yes, there is deep technical issues, which Udi often gets to. Uh, I just think that he should lead with the business front rather than backing into it from the technical side. Uh, Udi also made the comment about business rules, and if not all business rules are within the database, then the database cannot be held accountable to keep the data consistent. I really don't like this purist discussion of where business logic should sit in code or in the DB. It totally ignores the differences between the two domains. In my opinion, the difference is between, quote, set logic and, quote, procedural logic. If you have a business problem where a thousand records needs to be updated, do you want to iterate over that, or do you want to simply give the database an update command? In addition, nobody really talks about the fact that procedural stored procedures are possible in SQL Server when you code the stored procedures in a procedural language like C-sharp or VB. How often has .NET Rocks had a discussion between two disciplines in logic? Oracle SQL is much more procedural, and yet everybody calls it SQL, which by definition is a set-oriented language. Should good developers know SQL? No, but they better know the difference between set logic and procedural logic and weigh the advantages and disadvantages of each when attempting to address the business problem or requirement. We need to stop talking about the best way to implement because there is never a best way. You always have to take into account the business environment first before that can be determined. A fact that too many cool technology developers do not put enough emphasis on. Who are you building this solution for anyway? You know, I don't think they met Udi lately. No. You're a different Udi than you were back well, then. Well, I don't think... The funny part here is... We totally buy into what he's saying here, without a doubt. Right? Sure. That you, but this was a technical discussion about CQRS. Right. right. And so we did back into the business side, knowing it was relevant because right. we were doing having a technical session in the first place. But that wasn't the that wasn't the show. No, it wasn't yeah. the show. And I think we focused on the things that needed to be focused on. But without a doubt, and I think we're going to have a whole show about that right now. Absolutely, more we are around the business side of these things. Yeah. Uh, and I do think that developers ought to know their way around SQL. It is a useful skill. That's a different issue than knowing how to gather good business requirements. You have a short comment, Udi? Well, there's always the problem of. You know, if you just have an hour and you got a message to get out there, yeah. yep. you're not going to be able to give everything the the depth and richness that it needs. And whether that's an hour or five days or whatever that number mm. is. Um, 
And, and I think that it's important to keep in mind to, you know, for everybody listening, whether you're reading a blog post or you're reading a book or you're attending a seminar, is that you're not going to be able to pick up on the whole story. You know, occasionally I have that. Somebody will send me an email or a comment on a blog post that, you know, in blog posts such and such, you said X, but, you know, in this situation, X isn't the best thing. Like, well, right. right. You're, you're never going to be able to, to write something down or communicate something in a short period of time that is going to address every single situation. Yeah. So even when we say, hey, you know, CQRS is an interesting approach, take a look at it, or, or SQL and set-based logic is, mm -hmm. is, is valuable, you know, there's always the counterexample. Right. And then it's, somebody's going to say, well, you didn't get into such and such. Sure. So, and then when you go too broad... You didn't cover anything in enough detail. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and honestly... And if you do, damn it if you don't. And, and honestly, it's like, if they ask for more, you clearly did a good job because they want more. Right. Well, that's why it's my seventh show with you guys. That's hey, why yeah. you're here. Uh, so, Cod Pewter, not real name. We may not agree with everything you said there, but we're still going to send you a mug. And if you'd like a mug, just write a comment on the website at dotandrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight offers comprehensive developer training online. They have over 350 courses authored by industry experts and MVPs and people such as Udi that appear on our show. And uh, they offer about eight to ten new courses a month, sometimes more. Um, they have all sorts of topics, including uh, enterprise architecture and, and just about everything on the Windows stack, plus Java, iOS, Android, Windows 8, Windows Phone, uh, styling, design, and Node.js. Just about everything you can think of is up there. So subscription plans start $29 a month. Check it out, Pluralsight.com. Well, I actually haven't given a course with Pluralsight yet. Yet. Uh, well, the, 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 we're we're in discussions to do an SOA course. Nice. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, one of the the guys on my team, uh, Andreas, did an end service bus course. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, that's right. Right. And well, I knew it was just a matter of time. Maybe. Right. And that that's gotten into the top ten of wow. the plural site wow. courses and has kicked off the WCF course, which previously held <laughs> the tenth position. Not not that you have any bias there at all. Yeah. Not at all. Not a bit. So, Udi, uh, let's give a big hand to Udi DeHaan, our guest. Yeah. Thank you. I got to start this uh, conversation with a question, which is, are the motivations of developers different than, and at odds with the motivations that uh, business people who are, who are charged with the task of developing software in a company they have different motivations. Do they have different, uh, you know, things that they that drive them? Are they looking to get different things out of it? And does that, what is that conflict of interest? I guess, and how does that uh, rear its ugly head? Well, first of all, I say that we don't necessarily have to assume a conflict of interest. Anytime you have two people in any situation, their motivations are very likely not going to be perfectly aligned. No, full stop. Uh, anybody who's married can attest to this, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, are the incentives different? That's the word. I was uh, are, are the incentives different? Um, so there are organizational incentives that are at play to a certain level that everybody kind of wants the project to succeed. Um, I'd say that business people tend to be 
less directly impacted when a software project runs late yeah. than developers. In other words, if midway through a software project, uh, one of the business stakeholders changes their mind and says, you know what, um, I know that I said I want it uh, running on the web in the first release, but I actually think that iPad is more important mm -hmm. for our first release. So change all the UI to run on the iPad. Right. You should be able to do that in the same time frame that we already agreed upon, right? Yeah. Now, for them, it is not, so, there is no direct cost that they have to pay for making that sort of uh, change in mind. Developers are then put under pressure to meet the previous quote unquote estimates, mm -hmm. which were promises that were made on a whole different set of requirements. And, um, and target a new platform that they might not be familiar with. So it's, in, in that sense, the incentives are not exactly the same in the sense that, uh, you know, the, 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 the side effect of changes are paid differently by each one of these groups. How about the okay? incentives for picking technologies? The incentives for picking technologies. Which is something you um, touched on in your talk. Right. The big rewrite. Right. So, there, there are a couple of dynamics that, that are at play there. Uh, first of all, developers uh, want and need to keep their skills current. Um, now, wh when I say current, the, the, the problem is that there's so many new technologies out there that you can't actually learn everything and use it on, on a project. So ultimately, the question is, you know, which technology makes sense for this project? Uh, out of all the new technologies that are out there and out of the existing technologies. You could lump methodologies in there too. I mean, just, uh, yeah, you know, I guess any we way could. or... Right. So um, when, when looking at technologies and or methodologies, I, I'd say that uh, with methodologies, we tend to be more in a certain mainstream type of, well, we're going to do agile. And th there isn't very much choosing happening. It's not that, well, we could do the rational unified process, or we could do scrum, or we could do lean, or we could do this. And let's weigh the pros and cons of these various approaches and pick which one makes sense most for this project. I don't see very much of that happening at all. It's kind of a, we're agile and that's it. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side -side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, Just Decompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the Just Decompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile or vote for one suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to Telerik.com slash .NET decompiling. And remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. With regards to technologies, uh, in many cases, it, it does fall into that. If it's a web project, we're using ASPMVC. 
there isn't very much, well, what other choices are out there, pros and cons. Occasionally, some architecture kind of flits in there in the sense of, well, how much are we going to be leveraging the, cl the client slash browser with JavaScript, jQuery, HTML5 versus what are we going to be doing web server side with, say, ASPM VC? Uh, things like SignalR sometimes come in there. Uh, but... In the sense of choosing, I don't think that there's really different alternatives that are brought to the table. There are the, the common safe choices that everybody goes with. We need a database. We're going to use SQL Server or Oracle, whatever the organization already is comfortable with. Already owns. Already, already owns, paying for. Right, yeah. right. And if we need to make the argument for something new, then often there's a whole lot of pushback at an organizational level. Things that relate specifically to developers say, well, we're going to use F-sharp for this module. Uh, uh, there isn't very much business say in what language we're going to be implementing. Theoretically, they're not so. qualified to have an opinion anyway. Uh, theoretically. Yeah. I mean, it, it, anybody it, it, here working for the government? <laughs> right. Uh, so. A couple. Right. Yeah. Uh, qualified or, or not qualified, it still happens. Right. Uh, there's often a very easy way around that is... Don't tell them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a big one. Um, but, but, but getting back it's to, a, to, to, to... It's to, all to, IL in the end, right? <laughs> you don't care what it was written in. It's what it compiled to. Unless we were talking about the SQL set-based logic that's running in the database, well, right? there is that. Uh, there is that, right? and, and, and the JavaScript running in the browser, that doesn't compile to IL either. No. Okay, right. So except for where it doesn't, IL is everywhere. Well, we, the issue was, should we use F-sharp or not? Or move to the cloud. Right. I mean, you made a great point in your talk, which was that uh, developers tend to, to say, we need to do this. We need to rewrite. If we could just rewrite it with this technology or move it to the cloud or, you know, a few years ago, mm. many years ago, it was moved to DNA. And after that, it was, uh, you know, we need a client server or decoupled architecture. Mm -hmm. And uh, your point was a lot of those decisions tend to be made because developers need to keep their, they want to write code. I mean, they get, they don't want to maintain code. They want to write new code. They want to keep their skills sharp, right? Well, so you I, use the term resume-driven development, which right. I thought was really so, so, so there is that, but I'd say to a large extent, there's actually um, a belief. I mean, you, 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 take your, your your average developer, and I don't remember which one of you uh, has the example. Uh, the guy that's working for the, the 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 forestry division of the the state of Nebraska. I think that's you, Richard, that you always use that uh, example. Uh, you know, that you, you, your average developer mm -hmm. that wants to get their job done, right? And wants to do a good job. Let, 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 let's, let's not paint it any other way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're, they're, they've read a, a blog post that talks about a certain style of architecture and they've gone to a conference and they've seen the, the same architecture and they've been hearing from numerous sources that this is a good way of building software. Nobody could blame them for choosing that way of building software. Sure. Uh, so I, I don't view that that part of architectural choice as resume-driven development. This is just doing what everybody else is doing because we don't have any good way of finding other ways of doing things. And if we did, are we really in the position to evaluate which one of these is more suitable? Because you know what? For a lot of uh, systems, there isn't necessarily a make or break 
type of architecture. Most software isn't pushing against the edges of the ability of the technology, the language, or the methodology anyway. Exactly. You could write it in anything. Right. You, you have about the same level of success, chance of success. Right. Now, I'd say that that, that is true up until a certain size, mm -hmm. where I'd say that uh, if you have a software project with five to seven developers working on it, they're going to be constantly developing on this for a number of years, right. then the maintainability issues creep in rather quickly. Mm -hmm. And well, and and you know, then over that period of time, not all those people are going to stay. New people are going to have to be able to be brought in and get up to speed. Mm -hmm. Is this more a skill set thing that the skills that you can get are more important than that than you know any particular feature of the language what do you know is the most valuable thing right so the the what do you know is what you have experience in and then that gets back to how do people pick right technologies or how do they pick uh architectures or methodologies so you know if, if your organization has a training budget mm -hmm. and you're thinking okay which course am i going to go to now and there's a course on agile and there's a course on the rational unified process you're going to pick to go to the Agile course well, rather because than... Because the name's Rupp. so much better. You explain that in your right. keynote. Right. The real problem with Rupp was a terrible name. Yeah. So, it, it, it was not a very good name. <laughs> Absolutely. But the similarities to Agile were pretty astounding when you put it on the board. Absolutely. Though, again, there's, uh, there's a wonderful quote by Scott Ambler, a, an old IBM guy. It says that Rupp done right is Agile. Right. Hmm. But Rupp done wrong is just plain wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but I'd say that that's probably true of any methodology. Mm -hmm. and that, you know, an awful lot of agile done wrong. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, if you get smart people with the right set of skills and experience together on a team, they're probably going to be successful whether, uh, you know, whichever methodology you give them, because mm -hmm. if the methodology fits, they'll use it. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, they'll know that in this case it doesn't fit. So we'll go do something else and we're smart enough to make those decisions well and how to play the correct organizational politics to not ruffle any feathers. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it, and you can kind of turn that around to technology as well. That, you know, if, if you have a training budget, are, are you going to spend it learning on, uh, you know, how to do something with, uh, web forms or are you going to be learning MVC? Mm -hmm. If you're talking about, uh, persistence to a database, are you going to take a course on NED framework? Or are you going to take a course on, uh, was it the enterprise library data access application block? Yeah. <laughs> right. Remember that one? So, you know, but there's this is always not just got to do with names. Right. But also, it, it, I mean, what's the other strength there? It's the newest thing. The well, there's best the documentation new thing. available. There's the new thing on the one hand. There's mm -hmm. the what everybody's talking about right, right now, which is, you know, I, I want to be in, you know, in the in crowd. Yeah, I want to be a cool kid. Exactly. But yeah, that leads to sort of spray can methodology, right? Like Richard likes to say, you know, your boss likes to spray agile and you're, <laughs> we're going to just spray some agile on this project and everything will be fine. Right. You know, which is your main point. I think you're making is that all of these things are great, but they are just tools that you can use as a piece of your solution mm -hmm. in the right place. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the, the, your CQRS example was, Really hit it home, though. 
Yeah, it's uh, uh, I, in in my keynote. I said that that I've been spending some time apologizing for CQRS. Hmm. Uh, just you know, so many people have uh, you know. It's been three years or so since yeah. uh, since the original CQRS blog uh, podcast that we did, um, and it's kind of gotten into a best practice category. And exactly. <laughs> I cringe automatically. Exactly. Well, and there seems to be this need to have a one right way. Yeah, and absolutely, human, that's you, you, you. It's always the uh, you don't get fired for picking IBM, right? It's the I want the safe choice. It's a fundamentalist attitude, isn't it? It's a black and white. It's you want to make a decision as close to being fundamental as possible because then all of the other goodness ripples up that way, and you only have to make one decision, whereas you don't have to think about it more and make many decisions at the different levels of branching. Did you follow any of that? I mean, it's, you know, the decision to, um, yeah, uh, you know, what, pick, a, pick a religion, you know, for example, and I don't mean to get religious here, but the decision to pick a religion will have ripple effects on everything else that you believe, right? Those fundamental things. You make a fundamental decision, you know, should we, should we do it this way or should we do it that way, will have this ripple effect. So pivoting and quickly, I don't have to understand. Pivoting quickly back to software before we get into trouble here. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I, that, that I mentioned in my religion. keynote, uh, you, you talk about sort of uh, deep fundamental beliefs. Yeah. Uh, things like reuse in software mm -hmm. are considered, you know, uh, uh, to even call them a belief is... Uh, kind of would you the, word decision. the wrong way. Would I wouldn't even say it's a, it's a decision. You know, if if you go to uh, software developers all over the world and you say, so should you duplicate code or should you reuse code? It's kind of like a, are you an idiot right. for asking that question? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. like, of course we reuse code. Reuse is good, and, and reuse is even agnostic to something like object orientation. Absolutely. We, exactly. we were using code code before we had objects. Right. But so, it's when you reuse that makes all the difference. Well, in the it's world. when you reuse. It's what you reuse. Right. It's, you know, th there's a whole, and there's a certain amount of it that, that I mentioned. Said there, if you take a dependency on something that is changing very often like a domain model. Yeah. And you create lots and lots of dependencies on that in the name of reuse, then you're actually going to get into a whole lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's those types of things that the, the fundamental beliefs that it's not even a decision. Are, we're going to do client server. We're going to do CQRS. Right. It's a, Everybody knows reuse is good and the yes. more reuse is better. Yeah, there's a fundamentalism right there. Like a reuse is good. Yeah, mm -hmm. always do this. Never do that. Right. Yeah, those things will always get you in trouble. Well, Richard, guess what time it is? It must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And you're all members, right? <laughs> all right. Awesome. We have thousands of members, and today's winner is... Ahmad Lukman. Oh, big hand for Pakistan. Ahmad. <laughs> nice. Who is sincerely, sincerely happy. He's a big fan. And uh, yeah, he's from uh, Pakistan. And if you don't know what we're talking about, every show we give away something. Uh, and just go to .net rocks com, click on the big get free stuff picture, and uh, fill out a few forms, answer a few questions. We have thousands of members. Every December, we're going to give away $5,000 worth of technology. Some gadgets. And Let's surprise Udi. Yeah, so Udi, you have five grand to pick to buy yourself some high-tech gadgetry. What would you get? 
And just, I don't want to color your decision, but there are 3D printers now. <laughs> I, I, I can get a 3D printer? You could. <laughs> what a great <laughs> idea. That, 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 that would be awesome. Would I'll, it be awesome? Yeah, I think so. I, I just... Yeah, I'm thinking it partly for myself, but partly for my kids. Of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's the way that we always uh, explain to our wives all the toys. It's Absolutely. educational. That's right. Right? It's it for the kids. toys. Right. Yeah. Instead of buying toys, we, we spend thousands of dollars more. On a machine. On a machine that can make toys of much lesser quality. Yeah. <laughs> but you could, you, I, mean, I just but like it's educational. I, I, you know, you've got a little, little one. I remember we did a show with him yeah. right after the littlest one. That's right. Two now? He's almost two, yes. Now imagine getting a 3D printer around the Christmas season and (laughs) this child growing up with a 3D printer their entire lives. Wow. Just the way they would think about, I just make things. Right. I make a 3D rendering of it, I spit it out in this machine, and then I throw it at my sister. (laughs) (laughs) I just want a 3D printer that can make a 3D printer. Then we're all set. Yeah, oh, the, you know, the, 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 that, that would be the beginning of the end of, yeah, uh, you know, software that writes itself and machines that self-replicate and uh, Skynet soon following yes. thereafter yes, right. and the end of humanity. Well, I got to I got to um, call out another thing that was great about your talk, and that is some research that you did about unit testing, mm-hmm. which uh, really surprised a lot of people, I think. I know it surprised me. Right. So the. Uh, so the problem with with any type of research is that it's always dependent on context, etc. Yeah. Sure. But the numbers were really striking. It's the kind of thing that it's kind of hard to write off as some sort of statistical error. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they found was that uh, code reviews or code reading was able to find eighty percent more software faults per hour than testing. Hmm. Unit testing, integration testing, any type of testing. Mm-hmm. Just having people read through the code. And sometimes it's just people reading through their own code again. And in other cases, it's other people reading your code along with you. Mm-hmm. So 80% more faults found per hour is the kind of thing that you say, well, you know, if we really care about the quality of our software as well, we should. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore we spend time and money on writing unit tests, then why are we not spending at least some time doing one form of code review or another? Well, in the classic advantage of code review is getting another pair of eyes on the code. Just that there's somebody else who knows that code. No amount of testing can give you that. Right. So you're talking about the communication and instead of documentation right. as a, how do I explain this code to other people? Yeah. Actually just having another pair of eyes that knows what you're but doing. That, that requires <laughs> intrapersonal communication, nerdy. Right, right. <laughs> well, it's, it's uh, scary. Uh, you know, it, it is one of the things that uh, comes as a shock to a lot of people at, yeah, as they're leaving university or college mm-hmm. uh, and I was having a conversation uh, just over lunch with the, with a fellow that working here for the for the local government about that uh, about the whole education and, and software type of thing mm. uh, you know you go through your entire college experience to a large extent writing code by yourself mm-hmm. you get exercises it's you with a machine and that's all you do yeah and 
you you grow up believing that this is what the real world is going to be like. You're going to go out, you're going to get a job, and it's you with your machine by yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Then you're thrust out to the real world, and all of a sudden, there are all these other people that you ha- have to talk to on an ongoing basis, <laughs> and it is an absolute shock. Mm. And people say, this is awful. This is not what I signed up for. Right. And mm-hmm. therefore, any type of methodology that causes us to interact with other people through this self-selection process that is influenced by the college experience, people that enjoy working by themselves are the kind of people that end up filling the ranks of software projects everywhere. It's interesting. And any type of methodology that you come along, it says you guys should talk to each other. You're really, you know, cutting against the grain there and there's going to be lots of pushback. Well, back Mm -hmm. to your naming problem. The problem with calling it a code review is it in, implies criticism. Yeah, you are under a microscope. You are being reviewed. I started just calling it pizza time. Mm -hmm. That's a good idea. Because we always had pizza. Let's eat. Right? The universal two words of success. Let's eat. Yeah. Bring in some food. And well, and it's just... And eating by yourself is kind of weird. People would rather eat in a group. And if you happen to have some code to look at along the way, why not? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. Pizza time. Pizza, Pizza time. time. <laughs> <laughs> and that brought the show to a screeching halt. Well, you're all hungry now. That's what <laughs> <laughs> we already had our pizza today. Uh, you know, some of the other topics we've had recently in the past in the, in the past few shows that I think tie back to some of the things you were saying about these assumptions, like the assumption we're going to use a database, right? They, they just this presumption that, and, and especially the classical relational database is going to keep a unique instance of everything. There's going to be one copy of the data in one place. Mm-hmm. And you went after this in your talk as well. It's just like, why does there have to be one? Why can't there be many? Or why do we have to model the real world anyway? Right. So, so those are two different things. Let me take them one at a time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the, why do we want one database? Uh, to large extent, that's a, a reaction to, uh, to a problem that, that, that's been happening in software. I mean, you go back to say, uh, the Mm eighties, you had lots of, uh, programmer type analyst guys, each of them kind of working in their own little bubble, solving an isolated business problem, Mm -hmm. storing their data wherever they stored it. You know, fast forward five, ten years after that, organizations had a god-awful mess of code all over the place, data spread out all over the place, data duplication, code duplication, mm-hmm. and that was a problem. It was hard to get a consistent view of anything in the system. So, the idea was, you know, let's get rid of all this duplication. Let's put all the data in one place, and life will be better. One we'll source of the truth. Single right. You want failure. a single source of truth. You want you know, uh, th- that master data. And when you compare it to lots of little ad hoc uh, databases of various technologies and lots of overlap between them, you can definitely see the pull in having single technology, single data in one place. But to stop there and say that that is the best that we can do, uh, well, we've seen the problem that happens that, that as that database gets to be bigger and bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. it, on the one hand, becomes a bottleneck with regards to performance and people end up caching, which is just another form of saying, taking the data that's in there, putting it somewhere else in a different format. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so already, you know, most people are already doing caching, meaning we don't really have a single source of truth anymore. No. Because uh, anybody who does a query on our system is getting one source of the truth, and anybody who's writing data is going to get a different source of truth. But, but when anybody scrutinizes that, you make the caches go away. 
Right. So, mm-hmm. so, oh no, we only have one source of truth. Look again. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, so so into the whole multiple <laughs> databases model. Right. Now the issue is that if we partition that database such that there are multiple smaller databases mm-hmm. without overlap between them. So still one source of truth is spread. Well, there's one source of truth for everything. Right. But that source of truth isn't necessarily in the same place with everything else. Right. Okay. Uh, and then we can raise the, the second question of saying, for the different sources of truths that are out there, maybe different database technologies lend themselves better to representing that data model. Mm -hmm. So you might have some part of our single source of truth, which is very hierarchical. Mm -hmm. Now, you can force fit that into relational database, and many people do. Or you could say, well, you know, now that we've taken this bit out, maybe we'll do something else. Or some other part that is more graph-oriented, and then we'll just use a graph database for that. Uh So you can have multiple technologies as long as you still have that single source of truth for everything. Right? So that's with regards to the whole partitioning multiple database story. Right. Carl, you had another thing. Yeah, you I totally to threw you a, 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 another angle, which is um, you're not a big fan of modeling the real world in objects. Right. In general. But, yeah. So. And, be, and probably because of the, the ways in which it's messed up when you start to get complex. <laughs> Well, the thing is that the business problems that we're trying to solve these days are a whole lot more complex right. than ever before. Mm-hmm. Uh, more business processes changing more often. Uh, you know, it's it's a whole other level of complexity. When we look at the concepts of object-oriented analysis and design, and the entity model, the entity model was was written in 1975. Mm-hmm. When you look at the types of systems people were writing in 1975, saying, you know what, that was actually a very good solution for what they were doing back then. Thing is, we're not building those types of systems anymore. <laughs> Haven't been for a long time. It's been almost 40 years. Mm. So to say we're going to choose a style of design 40 years old that was, you know, the people who came up with it were solving a different problem. And to expect that that's going to solve a whole different level of complexity, you know, we just can't really see that that's going to work anymore. So we need something different. Mm. Uh, the problem is that that's hard. You know, when you step away from the real world, you say, well, what are my guidelines anymore? I can't just point to a thing and say, well, that there is a product and that there is a customer and that there is an employee. Mm-hmm. Create a class for every one of those things and then go to town. Challenge with those things is that that works very well if you're building a very small, simple system. And most of the architectural decisions are, I don't want to say that they're verified, but people uh, talk about developer productivity. So, look how easy it is to build a feature when I structure my system this way. Mm -hmm. And they usually do that in the first two, three weeks of a project. Nobody actually looks at, well, three years from now, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of lines of code and, you know, hundreds of rules messing in and around. How well will this structure hold up then? Right. Well, predicting what you're going to be doing three years from now is pretty hard, too. How Well, that's why we really should avoid setting really strict boundaries of customer, product, employee, and saying, this is going to be our our formal structure for everything we do for the next three years and years. What I picked up on what you just said there is it's the millions of lines of code later. It's, you know, it's fine when your code is the only code that depends on the mm-hmm. structure of person or object or customer or product or whatever it is. But when you've got millions of lines of code depending on that object structure to be the way it is, it's 
in, it, you can't change it. Well, I wouldn't say it's just the millions of lines of code and you know, millions is a lot, but uh, it's not only the millions of lines of code that depend on it. It's all the code that's in it and all the other entities and the tangled and mess of dependencies between them. You look okay. at every one of these, you come to an organization and say, well, how many fields do you have on your customer entity? Like, oh, it's enormous. Hmm. And how many fields do you have on your product entity? Oh, it's massive. And it kind of becomes just this, this, you know, everything in the kitchen sink. Yeah. Anything that's somehow associated with this entity gets just tossed right in there. Yeah. Uh, and then performance problems happen, right? When you get these right. big gigantic entities and good performance problems, and then what do we do about it? And then we try caching and that mm -hmm. introduces consistency problems. And it's kind of this domino effect of bad things that happen without people kind of going back to the source and say, maybe the whole idea of entities is causing the problem here. Mm -hmm. we, we keep trying to make it fit. We try to make it fit. We try to make it fit. And it just doesn't look like it's fitting. Not for problems of a large scale. Real world and technology don't always work the same way. They don't always mesh. Yeah, not always compatible. Well, not magically without any effort on the developer's part. Yeah. So, um, so obviously... Uh, Making object graphs more granular, is that going to make us uh, get us closer to that or using somehow more dynamic objects and not making them dependent on data structures? I mean, what, what is your, uh, what's the remedy for that problem? So in, uh, in domain driven design, a lot of people picked up on the first part of the book where Eric Evans talks about entities and value objects and repositories and mm -hmm. uh, and really like that bit. But later on in the book, Eric talks about things like strategic design and bounded contexts and other things that are a little bit more fluffy. Now, it's those fluffy things where you say, instead of thinking of having uh, a single domain model or a single system that is built up with layers, you can think of your system as a composition of multiple smaller systems, each of them having Think of it like the full stack. Mm -hmm. Each of them having a little bit of UI and a little bit of services and a little bit of business logic. Because not all things need to be consistent with each other at all times. Mm -hmm. So we gave the example in the talk about you know, the, the life cycle of a customer. How usually they, you know, they come to our site the first time and they're just a visitor. Yep. And then after you know, traipsing around our site for a while, they might become a shopper and they start putting stuff in their cart. Right. And we say, okay, well, there's interesting sort of these... Uh, cut points are saying the things that they're looking at can be put in a visitor object mm -hmm. and the things that are in their shopping cart can be thought of as a shopping bounded context that is related to visits in right. the sense that we have an ID that ties these things together but that other than that there's really no consistency requirements from the business across these two domains and when they ultimately make a purchase we look at, well, what is it about the purchase which is distinct from the shopping, which is distinct from right. Where the are those thing, boundaries? And finding those boundaries. So instead of, I, I wouldn't say it's more granular objects, it's looking for those large-scale top-to-bottom divisions yeah. and saying, well, what, and, and then making sure that they all compose a larger whole that is, you know, ultimately solves the business problem. And the, and the business problem being that that larger concept of I have a pipeline mm -hmm. with a certain number of visitors becoming a certain number of shoppers becoming a certain number of customers progressively smaller and I want to make that pipeline bigger. So I should be able to handle each of these well, relate them together, but also deal with them well. If, you, if you're totally customer focused, completely customer centric, you're going to mishandle 
the visitors and the, and the shoppers. Well, then you get into situations of uh, it gets back to the modeling the the real world mm-hmm. uh, type right. of scenario. So you know when when everything that you when every business requirement that comes your way, you look at it from a a predefined solution of a certain set of classes. Right, you're going to hear the requirements differently. Mm-hmm. Then if you say, well, you know, I'm not going to presuppose that I'm going to implement this on the domain model that I already have. First, I need to see which part of these requirements fits into which bounded context. Yeah. Right. And, you know, that, that bit is, is, or maybe I need a new bounded context for this. It's that bit of saying, you know, I'm going to suspend my judgment of how this fits into my solution mm. until I break it down into smaller chunks, which right. is more business focused. Right. That tends to change everything. You hear the requirements differently. You ask different questions of the business, mm-hmm. which tends to take your solution in, in a different direction. But again, that's really fluffy. It's sure. not the kind of thing you could say, well, just, you know, just do A, B, C, D, yeah, not and you will end this. up with a good solution. Right. right. It really requires a deeper dive into your business domain to, to determine where, where these things make sense. And I think that was the whole point of your, your talk, really. Which is, you know, don't use the spray can approach. Well, I, I'd say that there is one last bit of it is, is sort of gaining a certain amount of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Is that understanding that we tend to do this. Yeah. And catching ourselves. Yeah. It's the, you know, when you already know what you need to do, it's easy. But the, the first part is catching yourself Falling into these same patterns, admitting again. you have a problem. <laughs> yeah, it's admitting you have step. a problem. Yeah. No, it's it's like the uh, you know, it, it's like say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start exercising. Right. Right. Tomorrow morning, I'm gonna go to the gym, and then tomorrow morning comes along. Oh, it's raining. Well, okay, then you know, forget about that. It, it, the the day after. Mm-hmm. Oh, but you know, the, the, the kids have something going on with, in the school. It's, right. you know, it's, it's catching ourselves making the excuses mm-hmm. and always going back to the way that we've always been doing things right. is in gaining that self-awareness saying, Oh no, I, I'm doing it again. Right. And it just, it's, as you start to gain the self-awareness, then a whole lot of other things can start to flow from there. Sure. Well, yeah, you, you were, you closed your talk with that whole angle on this. You, you're taking on, you want to do agile, but not change any practices. Right. Well, why did you want to take on Agile in the first place? Well, because what we were doing wasn't working. No, because Agile is such a good word, right, Richard? (laughs) (laughs) Because we want to be Agile, or at least we want to be able to say to other people that we are Agile. Because it sounds good. Well, it's the same thing. People want to go to the cloud because that's somehow going to mysteriously fix things. Well, I mean, there's there's enough um, uh, architecture, it's called. The, that beautiful combination of marketing and architecture right. that it really feels like a plan that, 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 that holds up the cloud as uh, as an obviously good thing. So, well, what's the alternative? Are we going to buy all of our own servers and rack them ourselves and install Windows on them ourselves? And is that really what we want to do? So, of course not. Therefore, the cloud is better. Right. I always thought the, the big advantage of the cloud is you had new people to blame. <laughs> We're talking about blame-driven development now. <laughs> you know, it's not my fault the system's down. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's in my, the cloud. Yeah. The cloud's broken. I go back to that show we did with Michelle and uh, the Azure panel at Dev Connections, where it was just this realization that 
you know, in the days of DNA, Microsoft was all about five nines of reliability, you know, five nines. Right. And then the internet comes along and it's like, you know, forget it. Yeah. There's not, you're not even close to that. This, our, our servers don't have to be that reliable because the internet isn't that reliable. That's right. Yeah. One big storm can ruin your whole day. No. How would that happen? Well, that's why we have the private cloud. Yeah. Right? That'll we fix could, it. We could, we could repurpose any term. <laughs> To make it mean whatever we feel like. I, you know, Azure hadn't even been out, and I heard somebody use the cloud on your desktop. Yep. The cloud on your phone. <laughs> cloud on your desktop. Okay, come on Wait now. a second. I get it. I understand what you're doing, but isn't that really messed up? So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component One. Smarter components for smarter developers. We have a question from the audience. Uh, to go into your uh, unit tests and uh, the statistics you brought up and kind of why they don't work, right? So my question is, do you think it's a, a product of who's writing those unit tests? Because in my experience, I've seen that the same person who's writing the code is the same person writing the unit test. And it's not a person who understands the business domain. And that's why those numbers are so skewed. Okay, that's a that's a difficult question to answer. The uh, if the person if you have a person that doesn't understand the business domain, uh, whether they write the code or the unit tests, that's going to be a problem, right? If, if if they're writing the code and they don't understand the business domain, then clearly uh, they've implemented the wrong system. Right. Uh, to get somebody else that comes along that understands the business domain and is able to write a unit test, the question would be, well, why didn't we just have them write the code to begin with? In which case, if they did understand the business domain, could they not have written both the code and the tests and it would have been fine? Uh, now, part of the problem is uh, that people forget things, you know, the best of us. That, you know, if you're working on a fairly complex feature, it's hard to keep it all in your head. And very often we forget something. And that's part of the problem that unit testing doesn't catch. It's the tests that you forgot to write. In other words, you know, if you knew to implement the feature, you know, all parts of the feature, you would have known to write the test to test that that part of the feature worked. And those tests would have always passed anyway because you wrote the feature properly. Correct. Okay. Now, uh, and if they broke, then you would have redone them to actually make them and pass. You could right? have written the wrong feature correctly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, I'd say that th that the larger issue at hand is uh, which amounts of which kinds of uh, quality promoting activities are we doing when in our project? That unit testing has kind of gained that that status of you should be unit testing all the time everywhere uh, as a best practice. But I'd say that in most software projects, we don't have infinite time and money. Uh, 
Therefore, the thing is, you know, out of all the types of activities that we could do, like code reviews, like unit tests, like integration tests, like, you know, all the types of things that we could do, what makes sense for us to do now? What will give us the greatest bang for the buck? And it's different at different points of time in the project, which always throws the, throws the question back on the organization and management saying, saying, so you're telling us that there is no one right way of doing things and that we will constantly have to change how we're doing things to, uh, I don't want to say to be successful, but to be as successful as possible. And management isn't comfortable with that. They want there to be a way of doing things that developers will conform to that, you know, we will be agile. Therefore you will do A, B, C, D. And, you know, and that, that sentence is hilarious, right? Yeah. Like, we will be agile. That's why we'll stick strictly to the plan. Right. <laughs> it's funny. All right. We got another question here. I, I've actually got like two questions. Um, the, the first one, wasn't there, weren't you and Greg Young talking about writing a CQRS book at one point? What happened with that? Uh, uh, so, uh, I think Greg went ahead and wrote, uh, an event sourcing centric book uh, that does touch on CQRS as well. Uh, I don't know how far along he is with that. Uh, I, I tend to get lots of, uh, questions, uh, either from publishers or other authors, uh, you know, you should write a book or help me write this book. And usually my answer is, you know, I I can contribute a page or two or maybe a chapter tops, but but I can't do very much more uh, than that. Uh, The problem with books and why I've been uh, not writing a book is that I've seen how people read and don't read books. So, for example, Domain Driven Design, a wonderful book. People read the, you know, the first 50 to 100 pages, said, okay, entities, value objects, repositories, services, check, 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 check. I'm already doing all that. I am domain driven. The rest of these 300 pages must be extra. <laughs> they closed it, used it to prop up a monitor, and went on to the next book. Uh, I mean, wait, wait, wait. I just buy the books to own them. You have to read them, too? You don't have to. <laughs> what good is that? Right. So, so when, I, when I see that type of thing happening, it, it, and especially the types of content, concepts that I like to talk about, which are very uh, rich and interplay with each other a lot, I know that towards the larger community that, that, that is out there that might buy the book, they read some part of it, they misinterpret other parts, and probably not read half to three quarters of the book. It really is demotivating to think that I'm going to spend two years of my life, you know, putting together a really high quality work to know that it's not not going to go across that well. Okay, and uh, a slightly more technical question. Um, I read recently you were writing that you, you wrote that you're not a fan of... Um, of denormalizing data or, or like of, of having data stored in multiple places. I might be misinterpreting what, what you were saying. Um, does that, are you applying that even across bounded contexts where you'd saying like, uh, you know, obviously the 60% case you should prefer to just query into the con into the other context or. Okay. So uh, answering that question is going to require uh, some, a little bit of background. I'm going to try to, to, okay. to make it short. Okay. Uh, first of all, I, I think it's very, I think it's very dangerous to create, uh, duplicate, slightly different logical structures of the same thing. 
Okay, so if we have uh, one logical data structure in one place, we don't want to create out of the same pile of data that's in that structure, another structure that looks different. Uh, because then we, first of all, we have the problem of logical mapping between these two different constructs. Whether you call that denormalizing whatever, uh, I, I'm not a big fan of that. However, replicating data, what I mean is actually creating multiple physical copies of the same data structure. And just ha you know, caching can be thought of as something like that. Data replication. Saying, right. Saying, you know, I have, uh, I'm building a system that is geographically distributed. I have uh, headquarters, which is one site, and I have branch offices around the entire country. Uh, I'm not going to want to have my branch offices having to do synchronous queries against the headquarters every single time they need to access a piece of data. Okay, so I, I view that more as a data replication model. And uh, there are various ways of doing replication, but it's important to realize that that is physically moving data from one place to another rather than structuring it differently. Okay? Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the, uh, the conversation around CQRS has latched onto the denormalizing uh, side of it where... Uh, the way that I tend to do CQRS is that CQRS is really not used very much for data that users are looking at and modifying. It is more back-end business process type stuff, uh, which I, I talk about in the context of in-service buses sagas. Uh, personally, I don't like the word business process so much. I like the word business policy. I want to model my software as a collection of loosely coupled business policies because business processes don't tend to loosely couple that well. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you find that you don't need to duplicate or denormalize or create multiple logical structures. Assuming that you get your bounded context boundaries correct. And really the only way of doing that is by realizing that bounded contexts more often than not need to be logically, that need to be composed together to form a single system. What that means is you will have system A, which is a composite of bounded contexts, one, two, three, four. And you'll have system B, which is also a composite of bounded context, one, two, three, four. But there will be different components from each of these bounded contexts that go into each one of these systems. And all of that, you're kind of saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, I think that makes sense. I have no idea how I'd build something like that. <laughs> okay, definitely merits more discussion. Rob, you have a question. In the situation where you have a system composed of multiple bounded contexts, and particularly where maybe each context is developed by a different team, oftentimes the business still wants to see a lot of that aggregated into a single user interface that they mm -hmm. can interact with. Um, have you seen any interesting, I guess, techniques to handling that in, in terms of um, how, how deployment works, who handles the UI, is it these individual teams each hand, handling their UI, how are they handling? That's a kind of a complex issue. I see a lot of the things you talk about, you mentioned it's directly related to the user interface, and I hear a lot of people talking about how to handle these things in terms of the back-end systems mm -hmm. and organizing them. But then it seems when it gets to the UI, things get recoupled together again, or a single team ends up 
recoupling everything together again. Have you seen anything? Is anyone doing a particularly good job in this area? Have you, in the different places you've consulted, have you seen anything interesting happening on the front end that parallels the techniques you're talking about that, that tend to, at least you talk about a little bit more with respect to the back end? Right. Uh, so with regards to, uh, different teams working on different bounded contexts, there are some special BCs that, um, they may warrant a team, uh, in some cases, uh, the, the two special BCs, uh, that, that, that are at play, one of them I call IT ops, which is responsible for integration. Uh, anytime you need to call some third party web service, uh, uh, billing is a very common business process where you need to charge a card in order to charge a card. You need to get data about the amount that you are charging the customer. You need to have their billing address. You need to, you need to have data that otherwise you would have viewed as being owned by different BCs. It is this IT ops BC in charge of integration that can pull together this data from all the other BCs in order to make a single web service call in order to charge the card. That is a special case where one BC can do synchronous request response communication with other BCs. Okay. And having that or knowing that you have that type of BC in place really influences the type of boundary division and responsibility allocation that you do for all of your BCs. That's number one. Number two, the second BC that comes into play, I call branding that deals with creating a consistent look and feel towards the end user. Now, uh, things like uh, that, that, that often fall onto the quote-unquote UI team, this is not a UI team in the sense that they are in charge of all of the UI, but in setting certain templates of saying, uh, if you need to show a price, we have a class, a CSS class called a price. It is your responsibility, the team that's dealing with pricing, that any time that you are putting up a price in the UI, that that gets decorated with a CSS class called price. And then we can create, you know, uh, this is a list price. This is a discounted price. And each one of those things then gets styled differently. So while you could say that the pricing team, the one that's responsible for that BC, does some UI work, they are not necessarily responsible for the whole of the UI or even the styling of their piece. It seems to be more of a styling thing than a branding thing. That it's style across the whole thing. Logos may be a part of that, but so logos and color schemes and layouts and uh, font choices, all of these things. Very much style. uh, Well, when you talk to the business say, well, why, why was this style chosen? Mm-hmm. That it's part of a larger branding. We right. want to be viewed as a fun type of company. So we use Therefore, Comic Sans everywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, right. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so getting back to your question with regards to teams, we, that, that type of BC branding doesn't tend to require an organic team to always be working on it. Uh, but, there, there are also other elements with regards to, specifically if we're talking about something on the web, uh, you'd be probably using something like Backbone or Knockout as a composition framework in the browser that makes it possible to have each team or each BC bind their model to a part of the view model. And that only when all of the elements of the view model are put together, that ultimately it gets rendered as a whole to the end user. So you could say that the, uh, you know, does the BC really own the UI 
if what they're creating are JSON objects. So it kind of becomes a question of how, you know, where does the UI start and stop? A lot of times they say, well, if it's in the browser, it's UI. Well, what if it's JSON structures? Mm -hmm. That, well, if it's on the web server, is it UI? Well, if you're generating HTML, maybe yes, maybe not. And, you know, then you got, uh, so, so the, the, the definition of UI slash a UI team is, is not specific enough to say, well, what's their responsibility and how does that relate to everybody else's responsibility? Uh, this composition does work at very large scales and also small scales. However, you know, getting back to the whole um, you know, architectural choices at the beginning of a project, a lot of developers would look at something like this and say, but it is so much harder to build a simple screen in this style than just whipping something together with MVC. So, well, yes, but we're not trying to optimize our software so that building a simple screen is something that we can do in an hour. Because we know that for the vast majority of our system, the, what it may start as a simple screen today, but by the time the system go live, you're going to have lots of very complex and complicated screens. So we need to make technology and architectural choices that promote loose coupling and decreasing the complexity of that scale rather than trying to optimize for the how quickly can I whip together a feature, which feels very anti-agile, right? The, the, you know, at the beginning of a project, I, I could get this feature out the door in two days and you're telling me to build it in a way that's going to take twice as long. That's not agile. Or so the belief goes with regards to what agile must mean. Say, so, no, we're making architectural choices that will make sure that we have sustainable velocity over the lifetime of a project. Okay? Does yeah. that answer your question? For the most part. Yep. Okay, good. And one more question, we'll call it a show. Uh, so you mentioned that there's often a disconnect between developers and uh, managers in um what is kind of the best way to go about these things? And managers want that one best way to do things. And also the problem that developers may not uh, be the best people to um, do some of this negotiating. So I was wondering if you had any advice on uh, what are some ways that maybe developers and managers can come together and uh, kind of solve some of these problems. Pizza time. <laughs> <laughs> managers don't eat pizza. That's crazy talk. That's, yeah. uh, so... So that relates to the the larger uh, organizational culture of who gets promoted and why and, um, and and how are how is their development furthered over time? You know, very often you see organizations that uh, the people the the kind of people that are promoted to lead teams are the best developers. We take a, the, the absolute best developer that's able to churn out the most high quality code. Say, we're going to make you a team lead. Which, yeah, has anybody been in that situation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So, uh, without realizing that the work of a team leader is not actually to churn out lots and lots of code, it's to make the rest of their team successful in churning out code, and that's a very different skill set. So, uh, now this person ends up being a team leader and they, they don't really know how to do that because their team leader was also this type of alpha geek code developer. They just hold themselves up somewhere writing code and every once in a while sat in on a status meeting. So if they're in an organization where the only patterns of management that they see are dysfunctional, it's not surprising that they end up being dysfunctional managers as well. 
So you say, well, what can we do in order to deal with that? Say, well, it's realizing that these organizational patterns exist and are promoting themselves constantly. And that unless we deal with those, I mean, you can say, you know, you guys should talk more, you should have one-on-ones, and, but without realizing, you know, saying somebody should do something is not enough, is not enough to actually, uh, teach them how to do something. And part of it is, is saying, you know, did we really promote the right type of person into this type of role? Um, and, you know, that goes all the way up the management chain. Now, um, the you know, so how do you deal with that? It is it usually requires somebody coming in from the outside. It's not something that uh, is going to be changing bottom up in an organization when you have that that, that type of dysfunction going on. Um, when I say it requires somebody from the outside, it also requires a significant crisis. So, um, unfortunately, that's what tends to happen with a lot of my clients. They end up in a significant amount of pain. I, I had one client, the CEO, on the first day said, Udi, um, I've sunk uh, $80 million into this business unit. It's been five years. I've seen nothing come out of it. I'm just about ready to send everybody home. Unless you're going to, unless you can tell me that there's something that can be salvaged here. That type of crisis galvanizes organizational change and personal change like you wouldn't believe. Okay. So it's not just having somebody, if I were to come into the organization from the outside, you know, with my reputation and everything, but everybody there does not actually perceive there to be any crisis. And I say, well, you should not be doing this and you should be doing that. And I say, well, that sounds good, but everything's working great. And I say, well, no, it's not. You know, you can see A, B, C, and you're like, well, yeah, th- there are, there is room for improvement, but we're fundamentally doing a good job. So it's just much easier with an existential threat. Absolutely. I think we should change because otherwise we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> That's motivating. It, it is motivating. <laughs> Threaten them with death. That's yeah. the, the Richard Campbell solution. <laughs> you make me laugh. I kill you last. <laughs> so, so I'm sorry to end on such a uh, on such a somber note of uh, 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 of gloom and doom. But a, a lot of times, it, it does require you know, a really deep sort of crisis for people to realize that you know we we have to start changing, and we're willing to start doing these types of changes. And oftentimes that is the kind of thing that that even brings them to the point that they're willing to bring in a consultant from the outside. Because if everything's great, why are we going to pay an external consultant so much money to come in and help? It is a, it's almost a mechanism of buy-in to commit to bringing, to spending the money on an external person. Is yeah. this, I'm, I'm, we're, we're all bought in enough that we're going to do this to, to actually implement some change. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would like to thank Udi Dehan. Give him a big round of applause. Hey, we'll see you next time on .NET Rock! Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, 
video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 